0: and welcome to the history hotline the hottest line for all things black history and beyond hello everyone welcome to episode 59 of the history hotline my name is Diana Lynn Cook and I'm your host today if this is your first episode then welcome and I hope you learned something new today and if you are joining me Once again, then welcome back. Thank you for returning to learn more about all things black history and beyond. Um, So today's episode, as you know from the title, is about the Colston Four. Edward Colston, the statue, it's coming down. Did it need to be dragged down? That is the question we will be asking today. Now, it's very not controversial topic it's a very fresh topic shall we say because if you're listening to this in kind of real time when it was released um it's only a few days after the colston four were found guilty um of like criminal damage and pulling down the statue even though they definitely admitted to pulling that statue down um based on some very interesting um techniques tactics um from the defence they were found not guilty um and I think it's a very interesting case and I thought I'd want to talk about it today but I think also that I've never done an episode on Ed- Edward Colston and I don't think I would actually want to give him a whole episode because of the person he was and and obviously he was a slave trader and I just feel like it's glorifying him um in a different way to statues but it all the same is so you know I'm gonna give you some context in history about him just so you can understand maybe why they were found not guilty, um, and why the kind of case went the way it did, and the kind of history in Bristol as well, um, and why that statue was such a big problem for so many people, um, because you know even people that may not have agreed with statues coming down would have potentially argued that that statue needed to be removed, maybe not in the way it was taken down, but it needed to go, um, and. Bristol had a history of campaigning for that statue to be gone. Um, So this was kind of the culmination of a lot of things, including the Black Lives Matter movement of summer 2020. So we're going to get into all of that today, starting with a little bit of history on Edward Colston, um, talking about how long Bristolians have wanted the statue to come down, how it came down, Where is it now? And then the case of the Colston Four. Edward Colston, who was he? He was born 1636 um, and died 1721. He was an English merchant, philanthropist uh, and Tory Member of Parliament who was involved in the Atlantic slave trade. And I've taken that directly from his Wikipedia page. Now, I'm not sure if it said (laughs) who was involved in the Atlantic slave trade pre-2020. I don't know. Um, but that's what it said when I checked Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people just wanted Edward Colston as a historical figure to be contextualized in you know within the context of him being a slave trader Um, and you know now it's taken kind of all this for that to happen because I didn't know who Edward Colston was pre-2020 I'd never heard of him I can't lie um, good or bad things he'd done. However, I knew of places like Colston Hall um, and some of the other kind of schools and things that were named after him, having no understanding of who he was, which I think is, for me personally, the problem when we don't contextualise these historical figures and actually have honest discourse conversations about who they were. Because Human beings are human beings, not to um, justify his involvement in slavery. But I think on in kind of any case, there are going to be people, historical figures that have problematic sides. Edward Colston is beyond problematic. I'm not even trying to suggest that. But, you know, there needs to be more conversation is my point about the good and bad of, of people. People aren't just all good or all bad. You know, they're not just heroes and villains. I think there's a spectrum and people fall kind of someplace on it. Ed Colston is a villain. Sorry, <laughs> I can't see him as anything else. Um, and I'll get into his life. So he um, followed his father in family business, becoming a sea merchant. Um, we're thinking about the sixteen hundreds here. So and uh, yeah, an early seventeen hundreds um, where trading in all the kind of new European ports, um, whether that be Spain, Portugal. Um, It was very common. Um, His family traded in wine, fruits and textiles, and then later people. Um, So by 1680, he became involved in the slave trade, um, the transatlantic slave trade this is, as a member of the Royal African Company, um, which actually held the monopoly on the English trade in African um, enslaved people. He was actually deputy governor of the Royal African Company from 1689 to 1690. Now, that's a very high position. That's, that's not just, oh, I owned um, some enslaved people. This is, I was deputy governor of the company that had a monopoly on trading human beings, kidnapping them from their homelands and transporting them halfway across the world. He's deputy governor of this. So this isn't just no small, small time situation here now the royal african company for those of you that don't know was a merchant company set up in 1660 by as it's called the royal the royal british crown um the Stuart family at the time and the city of london merchants um to trade along the west coast of africa um it shipped more enslaved african people to the americas than any other company in the history of the atlantic slave trade so not only is um Edward Colston just involved. He's involved in the biggest slave trading situation set up of all time. He's not small fry, is my point, And I'll stress this a lot. The Royal African Company were also responsible for the extraction of natural resources from the continent, um, primarily West Africa, such as gold from Gambia, petroleum, sweet crude oil, natural gases um and gold especially the royal african company provided gold to the english mint and the english mint are the people that make the coins for the whole of the uk all coins made with this specific gold were designed with a little elephant below the bust of the monarch whether that be the king or the queen at the time um and this gold also gave the coinage its name the guinea um, which was obviously used in the uk after the region in west africa where the gold was taken from So not only were they so brazen in their theft of natural resources, they named it after the region that they'd stolen it from, and they I mean the British crown, and used it in everyday language. So everyday British people, you know, paying with a guinea or being charged a guinea for something, that was actually a direct reference to the theft and extraction of natural resources in West Africa. And I think this just kind of highlights just how acceptable this would have been um because a lot of people have spoken about you know in the context of the time what edward colston was doing wasn't it wasn't seen as a bad thing essentially it was what not everybody was doing but it was what a lot of people were doing and if you've got the british crown with their hand in the extraction of of gold and natural resources and as well as people you know how can you um then turn to edward colston as if he should be have been on a higher moral compass um when the british crown itself are invested in these activities not to justify anyone's behavior at all um more to contextualize it and give you kind of context of what was happening at the time anyway back to edward colston so as i mentioned 1680 he becomes a member the royal african company rises up to deputy um and you know During Colston's involvement with the Royal African Company from 1680 to 1692, it's estimated that the company transported over 84,000 African men, women and children to the Caribbean and the rest of the Americas, um, of whom as many as 19,000 may have died on the journey. Now, as we know, um, with transatlantic slavery, things were recorded because... Enslaved people were seen and treated as no more than property. Um, And just in the same way that you have items in your house that you might insure, content insurance, they would insure their property, human beings, enslaved African people. And so numbers would have been recorded. um, And I'm speaking on the accuracy of these numbers, basically. So numbers would have been recorded, but not always the most accurate because... Um, there's obviously room to lie. There's room to miscount. There's room um, for people to escape, um, and when it comes to deaths, especially, um, I think there was a lot of kind of mis misquoting numbers and just, right, you know, trying to get the most money from people that might have died. So you know, whilst we have those numbers, I I would say you can go more or less um, to get the real impact. But regardless, even with the numbers we have. To know that as many as 19,000 may have died on the journey, let alone those who then made the journey and then died in just the worst conditions imaginable, it really just kind of gives you the extent of what this man was all about. Just a disclaimer here, um, I absolutely despise and hate talking about slavery. Like, I hate it so much because it's just a horrible time in history and... I hate thinking about it, I hate studying it and I hate talking about it but I had to get into this because I didn't know about Edward Colston and I figured if I didn't know then you might not know so here we are educating people but honestly this episode is just not the history I like to do. So we're going to fast forward do this very quickly and I'm going to tell you about what this Man did with all his money he made from these enslaved people, um, exploiting their lives and labor, and you know, why he's why there was a statue made of him essentially, knowing all of this about him, regardless. So, Edward Colston, I don't know, stops working with the Royal African Company or whatever, um, that's not very accurate, but he essentially isn't the deputy director person anymore. Um, he's a Tory high churchman. Um, often in conflict with the Whig Corporation in Bristol, um, and he transfers a large chunk of his money and shareholding um to William the Third, also known as William of Orange, who was King of England um 1689 to 1702. Um and this secures uh the new regime's favour of the Royal African Company. So he essentially, you know, bought off the king and said Here, here's some money um so that they would support. Um the value of colson's shares increased he didn't have children so he began to donate large sums of money to charities he withdrew from the company in 1692 but continued working on his private businesses until he retired in 1708 Um, then he was mp for bristol from 1710 to 1713 he essentially used his money to um support schools Houses for the Poor, Almshouses, Hospitals, Churches, Anglican Churches in Bristol, London and elsewhere in the country. Um, And his name features a lot on many Bristol buildings, landmarks um, because of this. Um, He used his money and his power to promote um, his religious beliefs, which was high Anglicanism um, in the Church of England, uh, as opposed to kind of Roman Catholic um, beliefs and it's a whole religious thing as well but it's not relevant for this episode. Um, And whilst we don't know how much of his wealth came exactly and directly from um, the trading of enslaved African people or whether it came from his other businesses, um, private businesses that he ventured into after or before he got involved um, with the slave trade. So this is why people are a bit like, well, you know, not all of his money was so... Maybe not every single building was um, kind of the wealth for that wasn't created all through slavery. However, I think, you know, when you think about money, if you have a bank account and you have a salary coming in and that salary is from dodgy dealings or the slave trade in this case um, and it all goes into one part and then you, you have a private business um, and you know you have that money from slavery in the bank, which is obviously either a cushion to fall back on or money to invest in future businesses it's all rolled up in one and it's all rolled up in his character and his moral compass um so i i don't really like this idea of separating out oh well he some of not all the money would have come from slavery no that's not the point it's not the point at all um and so yeah um it's estimated uh that he spent the equivalent of million in 2020 money um, on kind of Bristol and charitable institutions, which when you think about the fact that 5.5 million in 2020 money is still a lot of money. um, And the fact that then obviously translate that money to whatever the currency was um, in the 17th, well, 18th century, early 18th century, um, that's a lot of money. And that is the kind of wealth he was getting from the work he was doing um so when you think about it all that wealth that african people were not compensated for um they were used they were exploited they were abused and this is the kind of consequence of this this is their money it's their you know the uh, fruit of their labor he did nothing for it um the colson society this operated for 275 years commemorating Colston um, in its kind of latter years as a charity. It decided to actually disband in 2020. Um, but this is kind of the legacy of this man. Um, and I think this is enough on him. But we will think about now the statue. And I just need people to remember at this point that the statue is not him, it's a statue, it's a piece of metal crafted to look like him. But it's not him because I noticed that when people were talking about that statue being taken down, thrown into the river, it was as if he was thrown into the river. He wasn't thrown into the river. It's just a statue. Real African people were thrown into the sea, not him. And now for our second section, um, how long have Bristolians wanted that statue to come down? Now the statue was originally erected in 1895 which is 174 years after Colston's death Um, and for context around 30 years um, after the end of slavery um, in the kind of British colonies um, and around 90 years after the end of the actual slave trade so The first thing to be abolished was a trade um, of enslaved people, well, of people to then make them enslaved. Um, And then in around 1830s um, was the end of slavery um, within the colonies. There was a six-year, seven-year period of apprenticeship in most of the islands, most of the Caribbean islands. Um, And so that's why I don't give it a specific date within the region of the 1830s. Um, So it was in this time where, well, 30 years later, that this statue is erected. Now, in Britain, um, if you've ever studied slavery at school, you probably studied abolition, um, and people like Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, have come up a lot. Um, And their kind of abolition movement really started, obviously, well before um, the end of the slave trade. So this feeling and the sentiment of abolition and slavery now being seen as a moral wrong would have been in public consciousness from the start of the 1800s. 90 years later, this statue appears. So it's not like this statue was erected during a time where slavery, even within society, was more acceptable. It's even less acceptable at this point. Um, you know, as we think about the way we feel about certain topics, whatever they might be um, in in society, you know, Stigmas get removed and we start having conversations about things and as time goes on things become more or less acceptable. It was the same with slavery and the fact that this statue goes up in 1895 to me is quite shocking because of the context of the time and the fact that slavery has been abolished um, at this point so It is seen, it was seen as a moral wrong and that's the narrative that's pushed and the agenda that's pushed when you learn about slavery in school is that people finally started to see it as a moral wrong. The church and kind of bodies like that fought and abolitionist movements were started up in order to kind of, you know, yeah, fix that moral wrong. So how is it then that 30 years later a statue goes up of this man that was essentially deputy director of the Royal African Company um, and responsible for the enslavement of so many African people. That's what gets me, I think. And I don't know too much about the erection and why it was um, needed at that point. Um, All I know is that it was designed by a man called John Cassidy, the statue that is, and put up in the centre of Bristol to commemorate his philanthropy. Um, his slave trading activities were apparently uncovered later. So there is this idea that people didn't know or didn't know the extent. Um, And it wasn't um, until 1920, a man called H.J. Wilkins wrote a biography of his life and uncovered these slave trading activities. Um, And then since the 1990s, there's been calls for this statue to be marked with a plaque stating he was a slave trader or to be taken down. Um, because that original plaque that was on the plinth next to his statue celebrated him as, and I quote, one of the most virtuous and wise sons of Bristol. Um, So it wasn't, you know, until 1920 that it's believed that we as society really know about Edward Colston's activities um, as a slave trader. Um, um, And that comes from a biography that's written by H.J. Wilkins, as I mentioned. Um, Now, interestingly... As I mentioned, and it it was kind of brought up a lot in articles I read, his um, involvement in the slave trade obviously predated the abolition movement, and this is just used to justify the fact that he can't be seen as a baddie because his um, involvement was before people saw it as morally wrong um, in British society. I think that's a bit... I'll reserve my words because I don't want to make this an explicit podcast, but I think that's a bit crap, really, um, because... At the end of the day there were abolitionists whilst the movement wasn't big there were abolitionists throughout the whole of slavery um there were people that knew this was wrong um and there were enslaved people formerly enslaved people that were fighting for this to end um throughout so nonsense to me but that's the justification that we've been given okay so since the 1990s um with increasing recognition of colston's role in the slave trade There has been more and more critique um, and calls for, you know, this commemoration to be actually uh, contextualised and the points about him being a slave trader be included. Uh, The Dolphin Society, which was formed to continue Colston's philanthropy um now actually refers to the evils of slavery and also recognises and I quote that black citizens in Bristol today can suffer disadvantage in terms of education, employment and housing for reasons that connect back to the days of transatlantic slave trade. I find that very interesting because not many people are able to link the two, the fact that disadvantages within black communities and black people today in Britain is directly linked back to the slave trade the link is long and it's not for today's episode, but the link is there because whilst, and the quote, oh, I'm going to forget it, but the quote is, whilst um, slavery was not born out of racism, rather racism out of slavery. Now, the point is, there have been so many different types of people enslaved for different reasons, black, white, um, Asian, North African, South African, like, Slavery and the concept of having slaves is something that, you know, you read the Bible, it it dates all the way back. No one is saying that they weren't as bad. You know, the situations of being an enslaved person is terrible, whether you're thinking about modern-day slavery, transatlantic slavery, any other kind of slavery, personally, I think it's, you know, you're still in a position of subordination and I don't think human beings were created to, to be that. So, the fact that... We have to remember this transatlantic slave trade is the only time really historically where people are taken from their homeland as black people, as African people, sent to all corners of the earth and literally stripped of their cultural identity, their languages, their hairstyles, their foods, their cultures. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but... The fact that it becomes about race because all the people that are being taken are African people, i.e. black, and all the people that are enslaving them, give or take, are white, European, or later on American. Um... Of course, there were black people that were enslaved, we know this. I I don't need to hear that. Someone always says it when you talk about slavery. It's not very, it's not relevant to me because the numbers are so small, but it's also not relevant because there was still a racial element to it. As I said, um, slavery wasn't born out of racism. It wasn't a thing of like, we're going to take these black people because they're black. It was, we're going to take these people because we want free labour. And then the racial implications came later down the line. Um, whereby you are literally taking people and their culture, putting them into these new lands, and then you have created a society, a two-tiered, two-layered society, where black people are at the bottom of it and white people are at the top. It created a racial divide in so many different societies, American society, in the Caribbean, in British society as well, to a lesser extent, Um, and that has created the precedence for the way that... Certain races of people and classes of people have been treated today. And I'm happy that that link is made um, by the Dolphin Society in this statement um, linking transatlantic slave trade to the disadvantages of Bristolians, black Bristolians today in the modern day. Um, it's a link that needs to be made and understood more freely because then people, I feel like I won't hear people go, oh, yeah, I can't forget about slavery. It was so long ago. No, you can't because the implications and the consequences of it are still seen today. Anyway. That was that was a lot. This is why I don't like talking about slavery. It gets me really mad and I'm really holding back. But I'm trying. We're gonna get back onto this statue and why why it was there and what the nineties were all about. So, nineteen ninety eight. There's an article in the Times and I can't get the article. I couldn't access it. I couldn't like find it um when I was doing research for this episode. But the headline um was Graffiti Attack revives Bristol Slavery Route um 29th of jan 1998 written by emma wilkins and the article i'm assuming um just based on the kind of context in which it was spoken about is talking about the fact that um there's a graffiti attack on colston statue i believe um and it is kind of bringing up the conversation the row about uh bristol and the kind of links to slavery um and potentially colston and so 1998 we can see that People are understanding the problems with this statue. And I also wanted to stress, you know, this is the 90s. This is 30 years ago. Um, so it's clear that the calls for this statue to be contextualised or removed have been going on for a long time. That's my point. So in 2018 now, I just want to go over a few instances of, of kind of people... That are pushing back against Colson's legacy in Bristol. Um, because it, it was it's been a long battle, I think, um, for a lot of people there to just no longer have to see that statue. So in twenty eighteen, Lord Mayor of Bristol, um, a lady at the time called Cleo Lake, um, she's a councillor for the Green Party and Lord Mayor is not the same as Mayor. Lord Mayor is like the role gets kind of passed around to the different political parties, I believe. Whereas a mayor is elected, um, like the london mayor essentially um so lord mayor of bristol cleo lake um ordered that a portrait of colston be removed from her office because she said it would uh she would not be comfortable um sharing it with that portrait she wouldn't be comfortable sharing the space with a portrait of a slave trader um cleo lake is a mixed race woman of scottish and african descent um and that portrait was was removed um She'd previously tried to remove statues and symbols of Edward Colston in the city, um, and she actually also spoke at the Colston 4 trial. Um, She (laughs) also admitted that, and this is taken from one of those ugly, smelly tabloids, um, but she admitted celebrating the toppling of Colston's statue, like many of us, uh, on June 7th. Um, And she was also, and I quote, shocked, alarmed and startled when she discovered portrait of um the slave trader in the london mayor's parlor and tried to have it removed this is obviously when she was lord mayor in 2018 um so again this is predating george floyd black lives matter 2020 movement um and the fact that you know these conversations are happening people know what this man is about and don't want him representing their city um, and so, especially I think for Cleo Lake um, as a mixed race woman, who who might have been the descendant of enslaved people, I don't know. I don't want to put that history on her, but you know we can't be sure. Um, similarly, Marvin Rees, who is the mayor now, um, not the Lord Mayor, the actual elected mayor, he's actually the first uh, black person to be elected as a mayor in any. European cities, not just the UK, all of Europe. Um, And so it's interesting that he was actually mayor at the time of this statue coming down. And I watched a documentary. Um, I did share it on the Instagram page of the History Hotline called Statue Wars. um, And it was all about following Marvin Rees in the three days after the Colston statue came down, looking at the ways that the far right then retaliated to that. Um, They smashed the grave the actual resting place of a formerly enslaved African uh, young person. Um, so you know, not only as I mentioned, the Colston statue is not a real person; it's a piece of metal. But the resting place of a person is actual actually real. Do you know what I mean? The head th- that person lies there in the ground, and that was damaged. He was sent hate mail. Um, he was sent death threats. Um, his house was on kind of a terror alert. The police had to be really vigilant in, um, whilst they they called it kind of categorised as low risk, there was still a risk to the safety of his, his wife and his children. He woke up one morning with Marvin Rees needs to die on the pavement outside of his house. Um, the documentary is, it's not about him. It's more about <laughs> Bristol more widely, but because they follow him around, you, you really do get to kind of, understand what he's going through not personally so much even though I've given you the personal examples but his response as an you know a government official you know he can't really condone the statue coming down like politically i feel like the politically correct thing was kind of him trying to toe the line of saying yes we do not want this to be the legacy of bristol because this man is involved in the slave trade and Yes, it is not the law that you can just pull down a statue that you're not happy with. But also knowing that that statue should have probably come down a long time ago. Um, So it was kind of a hard line for him. Um, He faced criticism on on all sides um, from other councillors that were saying he wasn't doing enough. Um, And then a lot of white Bristolians um, that were not about the quote unquote wokeness that felt like, you know, that statue should never have come down and he should have done more to not necessarily protect it, but condemn them after. Um, So, yeah, it was a hard job for him. Um, Not that this is about him, but I just found it really interesting that Bristol having a black mare, having to then kind of deal with all this, it it fell on a black man to deal with all this fallout. Um, It was very interesting. And some of the hate mail he was receiving all my life, Uh, I'd urge you to watch it. It's it's very, very interesting. Um, Marvin Rees himself actually tried to have it taken down in the past. But he does acknowledge in the um, documentary that, you know, there are so many other bigger issues facing, you know, disadvantaged people in Bristol that taking down a statue, yes, while it's a very big symbol of, of a potential change to come, it doesn't change anything. It is merely symbolic and when it came down during the protest, it not it didn't feel more than symbolic, not to criticize it, but it could only be a symbolic gesture. It could only be a symbolic move. It was beautiful symbolism to see him go his statue go into the river Edward Colson's statue. But that's not going to fix racism. that's not going to fix discrimination. that's not going to help people that have been disadvantaged by this same slave trade, however many hundreds of years later. Um, and he really was trying to push that message and the um, media outlets that were interviewing and they weren't getting it. They were asking like really silly questions about the statue and then counter protests and stuff like that. And he just wanted to kind of get down to the fact that, look, there is a problem of racism in this city and we're trying to fix it. And the statue is neither here nor there. Um, so that was another interesting in point. But this is me talking a whole podcast episode about the statue. So we got to get, you know, into this statue a little bit more. How did it come down and where is it now? Is our next section. So, June the 7th, 2020, um, a few days after the murder of George Floyd, where we started to see protests in UK major cities as well as obviously in America and other parts of the world. Um, the statue was toppled. It was toppled by so many people and pushed into the Bristol Harbour um, by protesters. And I believe that the Colston Four were kind of the only people that they could identify um and hence why they were arrested and charged because they were not the only four people that did it and I think that's another reason why I would not have been happy if they'd um, been like um gone to prison for it or something not charged what's the other word found guilty of because they were not the only ones it's very clear by every single piece of footage they're not the only ones they were the only ones that could be caught And whilst you still have to obviously, you know, charge people if you do catch them, it would have been like they were made an example of, um, even though they weren't the only ones that did it. Now, it was pushed into the Bristol Harbour um, and then it was retrieved. (laughs) I don't know why, like, I can't lie, I did find it really funny seeing it go in. I just, it was just like wild to me because i'd seen statues come down in america of like slave traders um in the years previous um and again like they were massive statues being pulled dragged down like the strength of angry people of raging fuming people to pull down a whole statue that is something and it was something so important and I'm glad I was alive to see it, you know, in the flesh. Not in the actual flesh, it wasn't in Bristol, but on the telly. Um, Anyway, the Merchant Venturers um, Society, who kind of formed um, from when Colston was around, um, said it had been inappropriate um, for them to have become involved in the rewording of the plaque, which was another thing that was happening in 2018, Um, and so that the removal of this statue was right for Bristol. I'm not sure if they agreed the way it was done, but they did believe that it was right for it to be removed. And this is a um, society that Colston was kind of involved part of. So very interesting for them to kind of come out and say that. But from the 4th of June, 2021, so last year, statue was put on display. In its damaged condition, it had red graffiti on the hands. And I hope that symbolised blood on the hands. The English lit student in me was looking for the metaphors and the symbolism. There was graffiti all over him. I think it said Black Lives Matter on it as well. Um, And it was interesting. The documentary actually went to the statue um, and the people that were restoring it. And they weren't restoring it to its original form. They were restoring it to the form of its um, damage. They were kind of restoring the paintwork on it so that that red paint that's on his hands and on his face will stay there because they were saying that because it obviously was in the harbour for so long the paint started to chip off Um, and they wanted to make sure that that moment in 2020 was remembered and people were still kind of saying when it had gone into the river and then it was, sorry, into the harbour and then taken out that it should go back up or something or it should go up in a museum and it didn't go up in a museum, it was down, it was lying down when it was uh, displayed um in Bristol's M Shed Museum Um, they had a temporary display I think it ended um, at the end of 2021 Um, and they didn't make it into like a big exhibition it was kind of just there they said it was a temporary display um, and it's a start of a conversation not a complete exhibition which I thought was quite good I don't think it needs the power of a whole exhibition we Bristolians anyway have seen it they've seen it for the whole life because it's been up there since 1895 and there's no one still around from 1895 um so yeah the fact that it's kind of in a museum lying down with all this graffiti on it to remember this historical moment and not the historical moment of him being a glorified philanthropist i think is very important um so that's how it came down the colston four jake's goose rianne graham mila ponsford and sage willoughby were the ones arrested and charged. Um, obviously not the only ones that did it. Um, they played apparently key roles in the tearing down of the statue um, and dragging it into the Bristol Harbour, Harbour and throwing it into River Avon. I didn't know it was River Avon. You learn something you know, every day. Um, and this um, obviously, you know, started up conversations again about Br- Britain's imperial past. We were talking about um, Churchill... People were even talking about Gandhi, whether we should have statues of them um Admiral Nelson and all these other people you know do we need to contextualize their lives and talk about the negative racist um imperialistic things that they said and did as well as um the quote unquote good things they did so it was very interesting um that this statue coming down was able to kind of trigger these conversations and i think that was probably one of the most important things um from what happened you know on june the 7th um the trial itself the trial of the colston fall was only last week um and i just found the strategy of the defence so interesting because in my mind I was like when these people had been charged I was like there's absolutely no way if they're caught on camera pulling the statue down they cannot be charged with pulling the statue down but like it's I don't see why I don't this is a big opinion I don't see why they would go to prison for that because I just feel like personally anyway prison should be for people that we can't have in society because they're too dangerous um I have other views about prison that I'm not going to share on this podcast episode today. But for, you know, for what we have now, I just feel like those people are not a threat to society. They're not, you know, a danger to the public or themselves. So just putting them in prison is a waste of taxpayers' money in the bare minimum form. Um, So I'm happy, obviously, they were found not guilty, um, jubilant even. Um, But this is the kind of strategy that the defence used. So... The um, Colston Four, as they were named, through their own legal arguments and their eloquence as young defendants, to be honest, placed history at the centre of the trial. Um, Witnesses that were called on were um, a charity worker, Lloyd Russell, 65 years old. His family arrived in Bristol from Jamaica in the 50s. He compared living um, in the diversity of St. Paul's, a place in Bristol, to the Bronx um, in New York. And he talked about the fact that he'd gone to a mostly white grammar school. He'd first faced racism at the age of 11 at a time. He just didn't want to be at school. Um, There was vigilante groups throwing things through his window um, in his family home. His father was a proud black man, as he described. Um, And, you know, took his mom to a place called Broadmead and people spat in her face. And, you know... This was him talking about the realities of living in Bristol in the 50s as a black boy with black parents and a black family. Um, and that that's the kind of evidence that they used. David Alasoga, historian, um, he actually brought the evidence that I gave you at the start um, about Colston, about his fortunes that he made as a um, shareholder in the Royal African Company um, and as a slave trader, kidnapping and enslaving around eighty five thousand Africans, including twelve thousand children. He brought all this as historical evidence. And I just find it fascinating and fantastic that history was at the centre of this trial. Like the way I spoke about the mangrove nine in the first ever episode, I feel like this trial, once maybe we can get more trial records and things like that, um will be spoken about in a similar way. Whilst there won't be the racial element of the Cosno Four there were four white people, um, it will be a very different kind of situation when we think about it but I love a good trial me um so this was very interesting to me um yeah so David Arsoga he spoke as well um Cleo Lake who I said was um the Lord Mayor of Bristol in 2018 she also was called upon to give evidence and just talk about the kind of state in Bristol and the history of Colston and this statue and his legacy and what it's meant and how it's been a point of tension for so long in Bristol. Um, and so, yeah, they were found not guilty. They all came out in their Colston 4 t-shirts that were created by Banksy. Um, and he only did, I think, a limited edi- limited amount of them and gave them to, like, small businesses, um, record shops and stuff in Bristol to sell. You couldn't get them online. You had to literally listen to this, like, I think it's um, a Juma radio um on it was like a saturday morning and they would tell you where that t-shirt was going to be sold that day and it was sold in like five shops across bristol and it was first come first serve one per person um to support their case essentially big up banksy for doing all of that and they came out in those t-shirts jubilant because they'd won the case and a lot of people um on the other side of the political spectrum were in disbelief and the precedence that this will set and it is going to set a massive precedence I don't know how many other statues are just gonna be felled and come down, um, and be dragged into rivers, and I'm not saying it should happen. I wish that um, the conversation would move beyond statues um, to actual actually fighting discrimination and improving the situation for some disadvantaged groups, marginalized groups within society, especially Black people. Um, you know, in this context, um, statues are a big part of how we understand history but they're not the only way Um, and I think we could have all the statues of all the kind of evil people in the world up but if we understood them to be um, evil people and we had that history um, and knew that then I think there would be less of a problem but the issue that most people have and rightly so is glorifying these historical figures in um, a false light that is not really justifiable is problematic Um, And that is going to be all for me um, on this episode. I just want to leave you with the point that that statue of Edward Colston um, was pulled down and across its 17th century robes is scrawled BLM, Black Lives Matter. And let's be honest, Black Lives did not matter to this slave trader in the 18th century or the 17th century. But they had to matter to him and his statue as he ended up. In the river in 2020 thank you so much for listening i hope you have a wonderful week goodbye